After Life podcast, where we talk about ministry, church, family, and culture. I'm David Brown. And I'm Rhonda Blevins. So, David, my friend Fritz asked me, um, what's in the cups that we're holding in our in our little cartoon logo? I didn't well, give I mean, him an answer. What's what are what's in the cups? <laughs> I mean, it probably depends on the day, right? Yeah, I think it depends <laughs> on the, the day. You know, <laughs> Thursday it, nights, I, I can tell you, it's not coffee. <laughs> it, it might be coffee right now. Um, I might also have a, another beverage in my other hand at the same time. <laughs> I think it's Diet Coke for me right now, except it's a little dry. But uh, well, let's, with that, maybe we should talk about the uh, caffeinated pastor life. This year, Rhonda, with COVID and all of the disruption, we've lost so many of our rituals. My church, we've lost, you know, the chance to sit together in the same room and to come to the communion table and to break a piece of bread off of that loaf. Um, we've lost the chance to see our kids coloring on coloring pages over in the corner. Uh, we've lost just a lot of those rhythms of life and yeah. some of the things that I think a year ago we would have said were at the center of what it means to be church together. Yeah, definitely. So I know you've said that at your church, even though some people are gathering in person, mm-hmm. you know, there's not congregational singing, um, there clearly are not people who feel comfortable coming back and being in the same room together. Right. I'm sure that there are other rituals and parts of your community life that you've been missing uh, or people have been sad about. Right. You know, why is it that these rituals are so important to our life as Christian community? Well, I've been thinking about that a little bit. I I recently read a a great article. It was an interview with a psychotherapist named Frances Weller, who has done a lot of work around ritual specifically. I think his work um, relates to men in particular. I think it's broad, but he's done a lot of work with men and ritual. particularly around rites of initiation. Um, But this particular article that I was reading talks about trauma um, and compares trauma with rites of initiation. And and it was really interesting. He says that- That's interesting for like this time in our life too, you know, trauma or the disruption. I would not normally think about those two things as being related. I'm interested to hear. Yeah, no, no, I hadn't thought about it in that way either. But he says that in both initiation and in trauma, that there are three things that happen. Okay, he says, number one, that there's a severance from the world that you once knew. Hmm. Number two, that there's a radical alteration in your sense of identity. And then number three, there's a profound realization that you can never go back to the world that was. And then he says in true initiation that you don't, you, you don't want to go back to the world that was um, because this initiation kind of opens the world up for you. It kind of makes it more expansive and inclusive. Um, think about maybe, well, in the Christian tradition, baptism, right? That's a, that's a, a rite of initiation, if you will, and you don't want to go back, you know, to the way it was before. It opens you up to the the broader world of the faith. Um, And then he says the same three things happen in trauma. And this is where it gets interesting to me. 
the severance from the world that you once knew, the alteration in your sense of identity, and then the, the realization that you can never go back to the world as it was. That same thing happens in trauma, but mm -hmm. in trauma, your world closes in. You, you become cut off and the world becomes smaller. Um, he says, if you talk to anybody that's gone through trauma, that that's the effect that it has on the body and on the psyche. Um, and, you know, our worlds get smaller. And so this, this past year throughout this uh, coronavirus pandemic, we've been experiencing collective trauma. We've shut down, we've closed off. Um, that's some of the language that we hear, you know, closed in literally. Yeah. So I think what I'm hearing from you in this stuff from Francis Weller is, you know, the idea of the, the, the road or the path that we travel through trauma or through initiation rites, that there's a lot of similarity in the pathway. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of difference in what you find at the end. You know, if the initiation rite opens you up to something new, but the trauma tends to close you off to something. Right. You, you know, to me, is, is that in your mind, is that about agency? Is it about the agency that we have? Or is it about, you know, the initiation right coming along with a, a life change or a life stage development? What's your thought? Yeah, so uh, that's a great, that's a great idea that it might be about agency. In this article that I read, he talks about it being um, that, that rights of initiation and ritual gives um, a container um, for the experience of death and maybe not like a, a physical death, but, um, you know, the death of, uh, you know, a phase of your life or of an experience, the death yeah. of your high school years, so to speak, that, sure. uh, that the ritual gives us a container to put that in. And so much of our trauma that we experience today, we don't have container in Western culture, we don't have yeah. containers. And yeah. so we're just out there dying, so to speak, alone and without a way to frame it. And, and just amp that up during COVID times. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like we have experienced, you know, this collective trauma and in the midst of it, we've been forced by the nature of the pandemic to be apart from one another. And so, to give up our rituals of singing, which right. is kind of a, what he calls a primary satisfaction, he calls it, these rituals. Um, and singing yeah. is one. Um, well, I heard somebody talk recently about their experience of being in particularly Christian worship and feeling an uncomfortableness with confessions of faith, you know, saying the Apostles' Creed together or something like yeah. that. And that in saying, speaking the words, I believe, I believe, I believe, and some amount of dissonance with, do I really believe that or do I have to yeah. qualify my belief? But then saying when it came to singing that he was all in, you know, and this idea of being all in on the singing and that something about just the connection that music makes yeah. and, and the ability to sing a statement of faith that gave him at least a lot more uh, ability to join into that ritual moment, even more than a spoken ritual like the Confession of Faith or the, the Apostles' Creed. Yeah, it, well, we sing some terrible theology with gusto, don't we? <laughs> well, then, so maybe that's the flip side of what he was saying. <laughs> well, so in the midst of COVID and what you've seen over this last year, what what are some of the ways that uh, that this collective trauma is playing out for us? 
Yeah. So, so here's an, an experience that maybe you've shared that every time somebody I love, whether it be a church member or somebody in my family or a friend tells me that they've gotten their first vaccine or more, a couple, even their second. Now, um, I feel this kind of palpable sense of relief. Like I, you know, you hear the expression of weight's been lifted off my shoulders. Like I can exhale just a little bit. And every time somebody tells me that it's like a little bit of the anxiety that I've been holding over this past year dissipates and I can, I can relax. And is that the same experience for you or am I just a weirdo? No, I think that's exactly right. Uh Uh, My parents get their second shot this week. Uh, My spouse, Sarah is a healthcare provider. So she's gotten both of her vaccine shots. So you know, and, and we talk a little bit as we prepare for this podcast together, but we don't go note by note or uh, right. point by point. It's, it's so interesting that you bring this up because in our weekly gatherings as the welcome table on Sunday mornings, uh, almost every week during the God sightings part of our time together, somebody will mention having gotten their dose of the vaccine. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right. So here's a little story from my church. We um, are in the Tampa Bay area and we had this little thing called the Super Bowl. I don't know if you've heard about it. Anyway. Yeah. So we had our football, a little football team played in and I think they did pretty well. Um, And so passing COVID around at the parades. Yeah, yeah, they were. They were. Well, we had a a, a life-size cardboard cutout of the quarterback uh what's his name <laughs> Brady yeah so Tom yeah. Brady made an quote um, appearance at my church some uh, there was a couple that was watching online we live stream um they weren't in church but they were watching online and they stopped by after church because they wanted to have a picture made with Tom Brady and uh while they were there they said well we got our first you know vaccine shot and I told them I said well that's awesome every time somebody tells me that it's like a weight has been lifted my office manager was standing nearby and she said we should ring a bell every time somebody gets their vaccine and I was like haha we should ring the more I thought about it I was like oh my gosh we should ring ring a bell (laughs) so here's the deal we I bought this bell uh that we're going to hang on the wall in our sanctuary and every time somebody completes their vaccine treatment their two shots or whatever we're going to invite them to either come themselves and ring the bell or give us their name and we'll ring the bell for them um and i I started off thinking we would do it weekly i think we're going to do it monthly but it's going to serve in my mind it's going to serve two purposes number one the whole congregation can get that sense of the weight being lifted off of their shoulders and we can celebrate with one another. Um, But then number two, and and this is a, a, maybe a side effect, so to speak, I think it may serve as a marker for people of the transition kind of back to being in community and returning to uh, congregational life. Uh, the the word in the scriptures is an Ebenezer. You remember that word? I, Was I it, do. Uh, now Jacob's? I read my Ebenezer from that. Yeah, it's in, a, it's in a hymn. <laughs> uh, Jacob places a rock, I think, um, where, where he experienced the latter. Is that right? He placed a rock there, an Ebenezer to remember. That seems right. We'll go with it. Yeah. We'll so, so we're going to start ringing a bell and we've got little stickers. I got my bell rung at chapel by the sea. Um, so I I, this is going to be our ritual over the next few months, as long as it takes to get our congregation vaccinated. I really love the physicality of it. You know, mm-hmm. even if a person's not able to be there in your sanctuary, I mean, that would be ideal if they're there in the sanctuary, they yeah. can, can ring the bell themselves. 
Um, you know, that sound of the bell ringing, you know, it's got every, all the markers of a ritual. Yeah, I think I think it, it might. It might serve as a good ritual for our congregation as we move to the next phase of our life together. But thinking about the importance of rituals in community, it brings me to another topic um, that I know you've done some work around, and that topic is creating a rule of life. Now, a couple of our Pinnacle colleagues, Ursula Harrison and Robin Sanbothy, they have a book on this topic, but you've done some good work on this. So, David, what is a rule of life exactly? And maybe how do I get one? Well, you order one from Amazon, of course. <laughs> so we're going to make Jeff Bezos even more uh, wealthy, right? <laughs> you know, maybe on second thought, that's not such a great idea. So, you know, I was really introduced to the idea of a rule of life from Marjorie Thompson's book, Soul Feast. I love that book. That book is, uh, I've used it with several groups, in fact. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. so her definition, and really this was the first way I started thinking about this, um, from Thompson's book, a rule of life is a pattern of spiritual disciplines that provide structure and direction for growth and holiness. It fosters the gifts of the spirit in personal life and in human community, helping to form us into the persons God intends us to be. So really this idea of a rule of life as a, a structure or a framework for spiritual growth and discipleship. Yeah, I, I like the idea of it, but um, let me just name that I'm not much of a rules person. Rules are kind of guidelines for me. I, I would never have guessed that, Rhonda. <laughs> they, uh, my Pinnacle colleagues call me a free spirit. That's based on the people map personality test that uh, Pinnacle right. uses. So, um, so is that terminology, I wonder if it's very helpful, the rule of life, or maybe is it off-putting to people who are maybe a little bit like me? Yeah, I, th I think that's a fair question. And I guess I think about it not as a list of rules, but more like a ruler, uh, a tool for measurement or a, uh, something to measure ourselves up against. So e even then, you know, that rule might be off-putting or a distraction. So I know there was a church that we worked with on helping develop a rule of life, and they sort of reacted negatively to that language. Mm -hmm. And what they settled on was our pathway to a deeper relationship with Christ. So ah. they use this pathway word. I like that. Yeah. Better? Yeah, better? yeah, better for me. For better sure. for the free spirits <laughs> among us, huh? <laughs> well, for me, there's even a closer image, and the, the image for me comes from right outside my window. Um, when we moved out to the place where we live about four years ago, the previous owners had grapevines. And so there are probably... 30 great vines arranged in rows, oh, eight or wow. 10 rows. Um, every year they, you know, produce grapes. We do hardly anything and they produce grapes. We had 300 pounds last year. 300 pounds. That's a lot of grapes. A lot of grapes, <laughs> a lot of grapes, a lot of grape jelly and uh, an experiment in grape wine. So, uh, <laughs> but the grapes, the one thing that we do to, to tend them or care for them is every year about this time. In fact, Sarah and I did this just last week. Uh, we have to go out and prune the vines back to the trellis. So the trellis okay. is the framework that supports the grape vine. You know, the vine grows up from the ground to the trellis and then it follows the trellis. And so that trellis provides direction. It provides structure and a framework for the grape to grow well. Okay. And if you don't prune back to the trellis each year, then the growth gets all wild and woolly. And huh. in fact, you get lots and lots of green growth 
but not many grapes. Oh, so, I don't think I knew that. Yeah, so, you know, this idea of a rule of life has the trellis, you know, the thing that gives structure or direction to our growth and faith is really helpful for me. Yeah, I like that. So as we think about that trellis um, as, you know, we, we've been using this word container, um, the trellis is almost like a container, if you want, uh, for, yeah. for the grapes. Um, so I've always thought about a rule of life uh, more as a person, a personal um, effort or spiritual discipline uh, for personal piety. But um, I also hear people talk about it. And you just mentioned that church that like the, the language of pathway. Um, so right. when you talk about it, are you talking more about a personal piety or a communal way of life? I think you could think about a rule of life in terms of a personal commitment to a certain uh, framework for your own individual growth in Christ. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that that really connects with the roots of where this is coming from. And, and, and maybe it's not the most helpful way to uh, consider a, a rule of life. So, you know, I, I think the roots of this would be, you know, all the way back to those early monastic movements uh -huh. and the rule of life of St. Benedict, you know, or some of those early monastic communities in Christian history. And they would commit as a group, as a community to these are the practices in our daily life. You know, maybe not just practices that we tend to think of as spiritual, like prayer, although that uh -huh. could be one of them, but there could be any number of things, including the work of the day or the way that we engage in relationships, the way that we serve community. Um, and really, the if you've heard of the new monastic movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, uh, oh, Shane Claiborne. Right. Yes. He, so yeah. Shane Claiborne, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. There are mm -hmm. a number of new monastic communities that have sprung up in the last decade or, or, or more. And these new monastic communities reach back to that idea of rule of life from some of the ancient monastics and bring that into the present moment. And so, you know, you can, can look up there, there are 12 marks of a new monasticism, uh, these okay. 12 kind of principles or, um, or guidelines. And for them, the, the focus was really on economic and, and racial justice, uh -huh. uh, simple and intentional living, hospitality and care for neighbors, but really a, a framework for how do we live out this Christian faith of ours in community, in an intentional community. I've always, um, I don't know if I would be bold enough to do that. I, I, I love the idea and the concept is intriguing to me and there's a, as a, there's a, a certain appeal to it, uh, but it does take a sense to me of courage of being able to commit yourself to living that way. Um, but uh, yeah, I have a lot of appreciation for, for those who do that. Well, and it seems like that's a good argument for a rule of life being communal, right? Mm, yeah. Because then you've got other people who are on the hook with you. And <laughs> right. And other folks who you've spoken, uh, you know, your commitment out loud to them and they've done the same to you. Mm -hmm. And so that idea of developing a communal rule of life, whether it's within a community of faith, a church, for instance, uh -huh. or some other Christian group. Or maybe that's a communal rule of life within a family or a group of families. Uh -huh. So I, I think there are really some interesting ways you could think about this. What, rather, it was at, if it was at the church-wide level or maybe a smaller group than that. Now, I can see um, if you're starting a church like you've done, 
that this could right. be a, a way to kind of organize your life together. But um, I would be curious what you might say for a church like mine. You know, mine is a traditional church established um, over 70 years ago uh, with the traditional bylaws and, you know, a church board or, you know, a deacon body or session for other churches, perhaps. So how, how might you transition from a more traditional way of organizing church life to this kind of, uh, to me, what's a, a really appealing concept of a rule of life or an organizing way of, of spiritual discipline and piety? Yeah, I don't know, Rhonda, does your congregation have a church covenant? No. Yeah, so I, I, I've worked with churches and I've worked on church staffs at, at, at churches where there's been a church covenant, you know, in addition to bylaws or constitution. Okay, yeah. So that might be an entry point, you know, the language around covenant. What do we covenant to do together? Yeah. Um, in Ursula and Robin's book, they talk about some different language that churches are already using for this type of common commitment. You know, it might not be a rule of life. Maybe it's core habits or maybe it's marks of discipleship, maybe okay. it's faith practices or a church covenant. So maybe those are entry points. And I, I think it's probably less important what we call it yeah. and more important how it functions for us as a community of faith. Yeah. So, so how about a, at the welcome table uh, that you helped found? Yeah. So, um, you know, early on in our life as a community, we were trying to sort of wrestle around with this distinction between member and uh -huh. disciple. Right. And because we were starting from scratch, we wanted to avoid membership language that, mm -hmm. you know, at least the ones of us who had come from church traditions, that has tended to be kind of a hang up. And so we wrestled around with that and we did talk about a rule of life. And in fact, I think we sketched one out and I'm honestly not sure where it sort of fell to the wayside, but I, ah. I pulled it up and looking, uh, you know, preparing for this episode. And I think it's really good, actually. So the, the key words were pray, participate, embody, engage, and contribute. Oh, I like that. And there were sentences, you know, that went with each of these, like uh -huh. the prayer one was committing to, to pray for and practice discernment with the others in the community. Uh, the engage was about engaging in missional action in our community. So uh, preparing for this episode actually made me think we need to pull that back out. <laughs> and I think it would be a really great way for a congregation like ours. You know, we have intentionally stayed away from developing the sort of structure that many churches have, organizational structure. Uh -huh. And so I really looking back at it and thinking about it, you know, I think it's a great way to organize our community life that is focused on living the disciple life together. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's more appealing to me than the old uh, mission statement. And I have some people at my church kind of pushing me to revisit our mission statement. And I'm, I'm not that excited about it, though I do think we need something. And so uh, maybe I need to, look at this rule of life and 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 uh, engage my people around that so a trellis huh back to the old grapevine kind of give yeah, us a, a guiding principle or framework you know and I, I guess it does involve pruning i'm not sure how open all of us are to being pruned back to the trellis oh yeah uh, that's a good question <laughs> yeah maybe yeah. we'll cover that in a future episode right yeah maybe well, David, I think that may do it for this episode of Pastor Life Podcast. Yeah, it seems like a good episode to me. 
Thanks so much for what you had to say, Rhonda, and for helping me to see some things differently today. Yeah, thanks. Well, be sure and check out our website at pinlead.com. That's P-I-N-N-L-E-A-D.com for clergy coaching, church consulting, as well as resources for leading adaptive change in your congregations. You'll also want to sign up for our weekly e-news with relevant articles and other resources from our Pinnacle team, as well as information about upcoming webinars and coaching cohorts. So, David, you made uh, you made jelly and uh, a little bit of wine. Do you, can you ship your wine across state lines? Or uh... <laughs> I'm not sure if that's legal or not. I might get a permit or something. Like that. Oh, you might. Well, maybe I just need to make a trip to South Carolina. That's is it right. sweet Rude wine, or what kind of wine is it? It is. All of our grapes are thick-skinned and super sweet and seeded. So uh, the, the wine's pretty sweet as well. All right. So a sweet South Carolina wine. <laughs> Here you go. Come on Sounds up this way. Me. 